Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, we have a great show for you. Our guest was the first CEO of the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board, which he turned into one of the most successful pension funds in the world. He's also co-founder of the Canadian Coalition for Good Governance. We're happy to have him on the show. Welcome, Claude Lamoureux. Welcome uh, to you, too. <laughs> it's great to have you on. So, Claude, we got lots to talk about today, but I figured a good jumping in point for lots of uh, discussion was, it's interesting to hear your background because it's a little atypical, I feel like, for for some, but, but an interesting interesting background nonetheless. But you, you were at Metropolitan Life doing some work before moving into the pension world. Could you tell us a little bit about that before you got what laid the groundwork for your eventual career in the pension fund world? I started at the Metropolitan Life and, uh, you know, it was a great experience. I had the fabulous bosses and, you know, a few that, that I learned not what to do, but most of them were excellent. The first one in particular. And eventually I worked 12 years in New York and 12 years in Ottawa, Canada, where the head office was located. And at the end, I was uh, responsible for all the Canadian operations, and we were diversifying. But uh, eventually, uh, we decided to go our separate ways, and that's when I went to the uh, pension business, taking over what was uh, up to that point called the uh, Ontario Teacher Superannuation Fund. Ontario is the largest province in Canada with a population of about uh, 12 million people. And in 1990, when I went there, you had about 160,000 active teacher and 40,000 retired. It's uh, one of my favorite games to play with a good Canadian friend of mine is to try to ask my American friends how many Canadian provinces and territories they can name. And most people, most people can get about three. I'm usually up there. I can almost get them all. But so we're talking to you today from Montreal. So talk to us, like, what, how did that career change happen? Was it something where you had this chance to take uh, take the reins? What what did the state of the pension look like at the time you took it over? I believe this would have been around 1990? The fund was started in 1917, and up to 1990, it only invested in one class of asset, Ontario government debenture, that were non-marketable, non-assignable, non-negotiable. So when we took, you know, over... Uh, there was a new board that was named, you know, up to that point, the board was mainly mid-level civil servants and, you know, union member. And, you know, I think in terms of investment, there was not uh, too many risk. But in 1990, they decided to create a totally independent from an organization independent from the government. And the first person that that was named as a chair was a, a fellow by the name of Jerry Bowie, who had, who had been governor of the Bank of Canada for 14 years. He had a stellar reputation, and uh, he then proceeded to uh, 
recruit a board with uh, the government and the uh, teachers and convince everybody that you should have experienced people on this board. There was $16 billion of asset. The big problem was uh, what's the deficit because everybody knew there was a deficit. The government had calculated the deficit of roughly $4 billion, but it turned out to be more like $8 billion when we did the work. And the government had uh, promised that they were going to, you know, pay uh, that deficit over a period of 30 years. But in 1990, you know, we were able to uh, use derivative because these obligations were non-marketable. Everybody thought that we were going to only invest the new cash flow. But the person I hired as CIO, a person by the name of Bob Bertram, who did an outstanding job, came up with different ideas, and one of them was, why don't we use derivative to uh, diversify the portfolio? And this had you know, quite a number of uh, advantage for us. So rapidly, I remember our, our first big investment was a swap from Ontario Debenture to US S&P 500 of a billion. So everybody on the board was kind of, do you guys really know what you're doing? And we, I think we had demonstrated to them that we knew a little bit. There was no investment people up to 1990. So my job mainly initially was to recruit an investment department. And that's how I uh, recruited Bob Bertram. And we proceeded to uh, you know, build an, an investment organization. At the same time, the board had told me, well, don't worry about the administration because we want you to focus on creating a good investment department. But I wasn't there a month that I realized that there were huge problems with the administration and uh, the teachers were not happy or the, essentially the clients were not happy with the, with the service. So, uh, you know, I, I also started to worry about the administration and uh, we decided that this was something that we had to invest money in. So, you know, I didn't spend, I spent a lot of time on investment, but also making sure that we could uh, provide better service than what was done up to that point by the, by the teachers. So our first big investment that is, you know, a billion dollar, you know, swap. And then we proceeded to use derivative to diversify the portfolio fairly rapidly. I'd say that within probably three years, we were pretty much at the type of asset mix that we wanted in terms of broad asset classes. But from day one, my idea was that I wanted an organization that would manage about 80% of the money internally and you know, use outsiders in the area of specialization, uh, initially in uh, private equity. And you know, the board, I think that uh, I was able to convince the board that this made sense, that we could build a good organization as long as we hired good people, that we had a decent compensation plan so there would be no huge turnover of uh, the, the investment people. And that's the premise that I, you know, that I took the job. And uh, I remember Mr. Bowie asked me, how are you going to run this? And I said, like a corporation. And, you know, one of his questions was, well, what does that mean? So I explained to him my idea. And he never flinched when I mentioned to him compensation, that we would have incentive, that uh, 
we would pay probably the type of compensation, not necessarily initially that uh, an insurance company. I don't think we had to be as high as some of the banks in Canada, but uh, we certainly had to be competitive. And that was the idea from the start. And we were able to do that. And, you know, as I've told many people, the board delivered even more than I ever expected because every time I would come up with a new idea, they essentially would, yeah, that's good. let's do it or they would ask questions but uh, you know having a good board made a huge difference and even today the board is mainly business people the teachers historically have only had one or two people that you can call teachers or retired teachers so and you know i think the union although they they were not thrilled by the type of salary i was paying they understood that that was necessary to be competitive and to attract good people and also to retain this, the, the same people. So we were an early user of derivative at a time that Orange County was going bankrupt and that uh, bad things were happening with derivatives. So the journalists were all you know, worried about what we were doing. So we spent a lot of time explaining to journalists, Bob Burton and myself, what we were doing, how we were doing it, the kind of control we had. And, you know, I don't think that we have, to me, the press is very important. And, uh, you know, you really have to tell them what you're doing. And if you do, at the end of the day, I think that uh, they're not there to just um, look at the bad things. But once they understood what we were doing, they never wrote really a negative article on on the stuff that we did, although we made mistakes along the way. But I think they were tended to be supportive, and that helped us also with the clients, the teachers. And at the same time, in parallel, we were working to improve the service. And over you know a period of years, we made it one of the best service organization in the pension world and probably even in the financial service industry. I think so you've I'll, hit on a couple. I'll, of, I'll stop there. And I'll no, it's you, good. It's, it's, it's good. I was going to say this question for later, but I think it's, it's really appropriate now is you hit upon the, the importance of, of structure. And we've seen in the U.S., particularly in the endowment world, a lot of the challenges of having a culture or competing interests and conflicts. You know, a good example has been a lot of the turmoil going on at the Harvard Endowment for the past decade. And so maybe um, before we get into like a lot of investment stuff, maybe I'd love to hear a little context for the listeners on kind of theoretically, you know, most, most of our listeners, it's a pretty broad spectrum of individual to institution. But kind of what do you see as the biggest differences in how a pension allocator thinks about, you know, the portfolio and the markets and competing interests versus, you know, anyone else who's just simply managing a portfolio? Because it's it's a problem that has many layers of challenges and, and complexity. I think that the challenge in the investment uh, business, and I don't know if you've ever, ever read the book called Fortune and Folly by Two Anthropologists. And, you know, it's an interesting book. And it was published, in fact, in the early 90s. And somebody probably uh, gave me a copy or I bought a copy. And my idea was, you know, I think that the conclusion that these anthropologists came is that in the investment business, they look at uh, 10 to 12 uh, pension funds, institutional investors in the U.S. 
and they, they realized pretty quickly that people didn't want to take responsibility. My idea was the opposite. I, you know, I remember talking to Bob Bertram many times and saying, if we mess up here, we are out of a job, so don't worry about it. I think we, we got to do a good job. And uh, so I'm, you know, you got to hire good people. You got to give them responsibilities. You got to create a culture where people become entrepreneurial. And that's what we try to do. And, uh, you know, we uh, had fairly broad uh, mandate from the board. So we were able to get into, you know, initially, for instance, we hired different people, one person to do private equity, another one to do real estate. Uh, and we asked them to build a team that would be uh, first class in their area. And uh, over time, we were able to do that. If you take real estate, the fund today is uh, the owner of the largest real estate company in Canada called Cadillac Fairview. And Cadillac Fairview stayed in the, we, we kept it independent. Uh, it used to be owned by 40 pension funds. It went bankrupt. And uh, we were able to uh, buy it with uh, KKR and Blackstone. And eventually, we bought the whole company. But the board was worried. What, what do you know that KKR and Blackstone doesn't know? And, you know, our answer was simple. We're here for the long term. This is a great class of asset. And that's how we, we got into it. With private equity, we asked, you know, a lot of the uh, partners that we had, we wanted to have co-investment. And in 1990, Everyone that we, we, you know, in early 90s, because this didn't happen in 1990 exactly, more like 92, 93, uh, everybody laughed at us. Well, you ask for co-investment, but everybody does it, but nobody is able to, when the time comes, to uh, invest the money. We said, well, try us. And uh, I think one of the initial uh, co-investment was with BC Partner, and we were able to uh, to reply to them probably in less than a week. And that got us, and, you know, I mean, they were very surprised that we were able to do that. But, you know, as I said, the board was very helpful in, uh, you know, approving these things and supporting us. And... Uh, to me, having the right culture makes a big difference in any organization. And, you know, as I said, when I was reading Fortune and Folly, I wanted to do the opposite of Fortune and Folly. We have to take responsibility. We have to do a good job. And, uh, you know, the rest will come as we go. The other thing that I'm a great believer in pension plan is to have a realistic valuation of your liabilities. And uh, again, you know, there was this deficit at the beginning that we, uh, you know, multiplied by two. But uh, we told people these are realistic assumptions. And uh, for a while, we were probably one of the most aggressive pension funds in terms of return in the early 90s. But uh, today, if you look at, you know, the fund, they're using assumptions that are, you know, in nominal term, probably below 5%. Whereas, you know, I remember reading an article in the Wall Street Journal where, you know, the uh, a lot of U.S. pension funds were using assumptions where the median was certainly above 7%. Uh, again, 
you have to discuss this with you know the the clients with the, which are the teacher and the government and you have to make them realize that realistic assumptions you know are there and we should earn the money before we spend it and we explained our assumptions we had a terrific actuary who uh, made you know probably uh, tens of presentations and probably over over a 10 year period 50 60 presentations to the government and the the teacher so they would realize that what you know the assumptions we were using made sense and we were always transparent with them and in the end i think this pays because People realize that you're, you're trying to do a good job and not just uh, try to accumulate asset, asset or a surplus that doesn't make sense. I, I think you've hit upon a really important topic here in the U.S., particularly about what we would consider to be unrealistically aggressive return expectations. And we can weave that in as we talk. I'm curious to how your investment approach was developed? You know, is it something when you started at Ontario that you had in your mind an idea of where you wanted to be? You said it took about three years to transition some of these concepts. And, you know, it, the, the portfolio looks a little more traditional today uh, versus the rest of the world. But in the early 90s, it, it certainly probably was not the standard How'd you kind of arrive at this policy portfolio that you guys have developed and maybe outline a little bit about your framework for investing and, and kind of the main the main asset classes and targets if there was any, but how, how'd you guys arrive there? Well, the board before we uh, we arrived, you know, there, there was any uh, uh, buddy in the investment that hired a consultant who uh, did a uh, traditional asset allocation study and uh, uh, I remember explaining to the board the kind of asset classes that were there, what what made a lot of sense, how to maximize your return and, and minimize your risk and risk uh, here is uh, was defined in terms of volatility. So this is a, a traditional type of, of study. The one thing that always struck me coming from a life insurance background was you know, nobody took into account the liabilities, and it took about four or five years before we created our own research organization, and we took into account the, the liabilities and how they behave under certain circumstances. And, you know, but initially, we were looking at the traditional classes of asset, as I said, with a wrinkle thrown into it, because a lot of our actual assets were not marketable. So we were using a lot of derivative to diversify in stocks and to diversify it in uh, bonds other than Ontario. But we had enough bonds that that was not so much the concern. The concern was, how do we get into stocks? How do we get into private equity? We, we bought a few buildings before we bought Cadillac Fairview. And again, with the idea that these were good assets to match the liabilities of pension funds. And don't forget the, the liabilities were also indexed to inflation. So we needed asset that would respond to inflation. And when the Canada was uh, started to issue real return bonds, we were probably uh, the largest buyer of real return bond because we felt that this was a good asset class for us. Again, 
you know, many pension fund took a while before they got into this, but you know, Bob Bertram was uh, the type of person that knew things and not, he was not afraid of new things. And uh, he, we were able to convince the board, again, having the right board, you're able to convince them that this makes sense. So over time, we, we migrate from, you know, the, the traditional efficient frontier, looking only at assets to a more pension-like, uh, tra- you know, investment frontier, uh, including liabilities, and our risk-less asset was really a long, long-term real return bonds, and so we were a big fan of these real, real return bonds, and uh, that's why you know real estate also fits that bill too, because again, you can increase your rent if inflation comes back. So we were looking at these, uh, and and because it was we were different than a lot of pension funds. You needed a board that understood what we were trying to do and was supportive of that. Uh, otherwise, you, you cannot go anywhere. You know, real estate in the early 90s was not a very popular asset class, but we were looking at the long, long term, and we felt at the time that a lot of the real estate was, you know, I think we could get, you know, uh, 8 and 9% return on the cap rate was around eight and nine percent not the return the cap rate was around eight and nine percent so we felt very good about these assets and over time it turned out to be a a fabulous investment Uh, on the uh, private equity fund we were you know able to uh, invest on our own we invested with partners but also once we started the operation we invested on our own and again, that has worked out very well. If you look at the history of teachers in private equity, we've done after expenses, we've done better than what we got from our partners that invest, uh, you know, the, the, the traditional uh, private equity group. So this has been a good decision over time. But again, when you do these things and you're the only one or one of the, the only one doing it, uh, you know, you need somebody that supports you. And that's that's where a good board comes in. That's a great, a great investing setup. And I was thinking in my head, you know, one of the most often asked questions we get from particularly individuals that are putting new cash to work or putting cash to work for the first time. And, and I imagine it was probably something similar for you as you're transitioning from a pension fund that held really only one type of asset to a much more diversified active allocation that has all sorts of different strategies and asset classes. So many people have the challenge of saying, do I invest it all now or do I slowly transition over time? And if so, at what time period? And uh, it's a question we get if not daily, then certainly weekly and, and every month. But having a good board or having a, a good uh, understanding uh, investor base is is pretty key to that decision because otherwise you get into the problem of hindsight bias. And obviously everything is pretty obvious in retrospect where you said, oh man, I should have just waited till next year to implement that. We should have I'll put private equity on three years from now. But having a good uh, understanding Board is, is certainly crucial, and you see a lot of problems where it's it's not a good in alignment. Does the, the the policy allocation of of the Ontario fund and pension is it when when it was under your helm? Is it a pretty similar 
allocation strategy, meaning, you know, X amount in equity, X amount in fixed income, X amount in absolute returns and other strategy, private equity. And it looks like it has a little bit of leverage as well. Is that is that accurate or is that a different policy portfolio than the whole time when you were there? No, no, it, it has a lot of leverage. That's, that's one of the things that we started, you know, before I left, you know, in the last few years. I think today probably the fund, if I look at, the, you know, I think I was looking at the 2017 annual report. Uh, you're looking at uh, borrowing of close to 40, I think around 40 billion. So, you know, when you can borrow at a very low rate, and we started that, if I remember, in Japan, where at the time we could borrow essentially at, uh, you know, uh, two-tenths of 1% and uh, invest in stocks where the dividend were, let's say, 2%. So that's how we we got into the the leverage business. But at the same time, over time, we expanded that to really have a program of borrowing. And, you know, if, if rates go way up, obviously this program will be closed. But as I said, last year, the fund probably... Uh, was around 40 billion what what they b- borrowed, and, and again you need a board that understands what why you're doing that. You also need good controls in case things change overnight. Uh, if re- rates were to spike very quickly, you got to be able to close these you know these positions. Otherwise, it, it may not be a, a smart move. But uh, this is something that we started way, way, you know, as I said, I, I left in uh, 2007 and we were borrowing at the time, but they've expanded the program since. So the, the asset classes were today are similar to what we had, you know, pretty much all along. Uh, but today it's much more gear. You know, when you have a deficit, it, it doesn't matter. You got to go heavily into equity especially if you look at the long, long term. But today they're much more in tune to uh, looking at the risk versus the kind of return they can get, uh, the risk of the liabilities so that they match the the asset. And that's what they've been able to do. The other thing that my successor, uh, Jim Leach, was able to do was to convince the teacher that the retirees should participate in the risk. So the inflation protection on future service is not guaranteed. You know, there has to be a surplus so that people could get the inflation protection. And again, this is something that uh, Jim Leach was able to to sell. We had started to do that. But uh, I think that over time, this will prove to be a very wise decision on the part of the government and the teachers to go along with this because it permits you to keep a defined benefit plan that in perpetuity, whereas if you only rely on the active, you know, chances are that uh, over time demography, that, that's one of the things, you know, in 1970, you had about 10 active teachers for one retirees. When I started, we had four for one. So, you know, if if you had a hiccup, you know, like a 10% losses in, in your uh, asset, you could, you know, increase contributions, but as the plan mature, today you're looking more at one and a half active for every retired. I think that this is, you know, this is not sustainable unless the retirees participate in the risk. And that's one thing, that's one of the uh, things that 
that the plant has, and that's an asset, in other words, that, that you can count on, essentially, ex, either extra contributions or a decrease in benefit that helps you match your assets and your liabilities. But, you know, coming back to your statement, I think a lot of the asset mix that exists there, it's more refined. They've done a, a very good job of refining the various, I think, we were in two commodities early, but uh, today they have a much bigger program. So there, there's different classes of assets that they've gone into uh, much more than, than we ever did. It's very Canadian to you. All my Canadian friends love natural resources and stocks uh, <laughs> more than more than most American investors I talk to. Um, talk to me a little bit. All right, you got a, a perch up there in Canada at what's going on south of the border in the U.S., where despite a 10-year monster bull market run in equities where the U.S. has outperformed most, if not all, equity markets around the world, you still have a lot of problems with unfunded pension funds and underfunded by, in some cases, a lot. Um, do you have any commentary in general on the, on the state of the pension fund world down here? What's going on? Any possible fixes for the situation and any projections as to what you think could be the future for a lot of these funds that aren't in great shape? I think that they're not in great shape for a number of reasons. One, you start with the liabilities. Many funds don't measure them properly. And many governments don't seem to want to even know the, the, what's, a, what's a proper liabilities. And in fact, in, it's, in some state, it's it's illegal to you know, or, or you have to go to the states to get approval for the kind of uh, of interest rate assumptions that you are making your valuation. So as a result, you look at you know uh, Illinois. A lot of a lot of the pension funds are in bad shape. Everybody knew this. It, it was it was easy to predict. At the same time, when you rely on outsider. Uh, to manage a lot of the money. When you have uh, private equity managed by an outsider, you have to think that at this, this cost, let's see, uh, not, not the 2%, but you're looking more like at a 4 or 5% fee on your investment. So that, that's one thing that, uh, you know, a plan like teachers, and a lot of the Canadian plans today are similar to teachers. Uh, when you manage more of the money in-house, you know, if if you get an extra half a percent, one percent over time, it makes huge difference. Uh, the other thing that uh, we were able to, uh, because of transparency, convince the union that you know contributions in the early 90s had to had to go up because it didn't make sense to uh, ask young teachers to pay for you know a Cadillac pension fund, a Cadillac pension for retirees. So, you know, we, we, we preach a lot of solidarity. You're, everybody's in the fund. If you have a defined benefit plan over time, it's going to give you a better pension than defined contributions. But everybody has to be aware of the risk and everybody has to be supportive of having the right contributions and making sure that, you know, everybody realizes this has to be done. The other advantage we had is that we were an independent organization so we could make our calculation on liabilities and tell the government this is the way it is. And, uh, you know, for them, they, they could not just postpone increase or things like that. 
they realized that some of these increases in, in the 90s were necessary. They realized that the, the inflation protection could not be guaranteed forever unless the retirees uh, participated in the risk. And so we were, you know, in a way we, we had uh, maybe we were a bit of luck, but at the same time, we were able to convince politicians and union member that a realistic valuation was to the benefit of everybody. And it helped us being more aggressive on the investment side. And if you can be more aggressive on the investment side, over time, you will have better return. But with better return comes volatility. And everybody has to be conscious that volatility could mean a risk and how do you prevent some of these risks? And and I think that we've been in a way lucky, but at the same time, we've followed a lot of some of the, some of the work that had been done in Europe, especially in the, the Netherlands. For instance, the idea of having the retirees uh, take the risk of the inflation protection is not an original idea. It's something that we borrowed from the, the Dutch and uh, you know, again, we, we had people that uh, realize everywhere in government and in in the union that uh, these things were, you know, you, you had to be realistic in your valuation. When I see, I, I've mentioned earlier that a number of the U.S. plan, this was an article from the Wall Street Journal, but it came out from a, a study by two or three academics. When, when you see... Uh, pension fund using 8% return and some of the some of them are as high as 9 and 10% return uh, it, it, this thing doesn't make sense uh, you know on a worldwide basis there, there's a great uh, book called uh, the triumph of the optimist that has been updated uh, you know and on, on a worldwide basis return nominal return on stocks of 7% are probably the best that we've seen, you know, are, are the average that we've seen from 1900 to 2016. Chances are that going forward, uh, these re returns uh, will be tough to match because a lot of the easy oil has been found, a lot of the easy metals have been found. So I question how you know, I, I think the U.S. has probably some of the smartest people in pension and investment, but how the people got in trouble, it's a lot of politicians didn't want to face the facts. And, you know, I'm reading Michael Lewis' book, and I can tell you, you know, it, it, what, what I took from the book is that you have three departments where, again, a lot of times people don't want to face facts. I mean, his study is kind of interesting into how can smart people make decisions that don't make sense? And that's what has, ha has been happening in the pension industry. I won't say in every state, because there are some states that are uh, where the investments are done better and where the assumptions are realistic. But in too many of the states, uh, these assumptions have not been realistic at all. Yeah, I was on this soapbox yesterday on Twitter where there's there's survey after survey if you look at investors all around the world and, and the number they almost always come up with uh, for what do they expect their portfolio returns to be is around 10%. And there's a full 20% of the people 
one in five that expect their portfolio returns to be 20% or more. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it's kind of the ostrich problem to put their head in the sand. But we, uh, it's funny you mentioned that book because I often have quoted on this podcast saying that's my single favorite investing book. And listeners, it's expensive. It's like a hundred bucks, but it's gorgeous coffee table book. You can get free yearly updates. If you Google Credit Suisse Global Investing Returns Yearbook, uh, they put out about 10 updates that are shorter, um, but still beautiful to to the book. We actually had the professor uh, on the show, uh, Professor Dimson, a few months ago. So listeners, check that one out if you haven't. But a, but a lot of problem for people too on that is it's sort of like going to the doctor or getting weight loss advice. Like, you know, it's it's take your medicine, you know what to do, but a, a lot of people just don't want to hear it. So going back to a lot of the concept of having buy-in from everyone around. So you you had this luxury of having a great board uh, and a great team. Now, of course, if you did very poorly and did dumb stuff, you wouldn't have had that luxury because you would have been fired. But but you, you had a, a buy-in from everyone. And so let's say most investors listening to this podcast, say if you're an individual, their board consists of their husband or wife, and that's about it. They have no investment team. Or even if you're a professional investor, you know, the, the traditional advisor here, and essentially their clients, they have the their clients, which hopefully are educated and have understanding of what the plan is. But what, what are there any good takeaways from your time spent in Ontario that could be broad-based sort of advice for people on, it could be on the investment theory. You, the, the biggest one you probably already mentioned is expectations being somewhat realistic. Um, any other thoughts come to mind as to how people could uh, have some takeaways from you know your experience at the helm of Ontario for a couple of decades? Well, I think in the investment business, one of the things you always have to do is study history. And I think I've mentioned this book, Fortune and Folly. If you look at returns, this is a great place to start. Uh, John Bogle has written a lot about this. Uh, you know, I think the, the takeaway, you start there, you look at what the returns have been over time in the past, and, and you look where you are today, and, and I think that you have to make projections. But, you know, the, to me, it's having good people, you know, decent compensation, making sure that you're totally transparent. I mean, one of the things that we, we tried to explain in, in the annual reports for years was why we were doing what we were doing, having annual meeting. I think the annual meeting of the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, sometimes the questions have been as long as two hours. And uh, to me, you got to be transparent. You got to explain what you're doing. You got to explain to the politicians why uh, you're doing the different thing. And at, at the end, you, you know, this, this is what you need in my mind to run not just a pension plan, but a decent organization of any kind, of any kind. And, uh, you know, I don't think there, there's any secret in uh, what we've done. I think in Canada, most of the pension plan, maybe we were there a little bit earlier than, than they were. But a lot of them have the model that, you know, a similar model to Ontario teachers. And uh, some of them hopefully have improved on that. And uh, I think that, that the secret is having total transparency with the right people. I think the U.S. is probably some of the best people in the world in, of investment. 
but it doesn't show in in the way that the pension funds are run uh, because I think that the politicians a lot of times have very little interest in what's going to happen in the future, and that's what you have to look in pension funds. You have to look not at this week, but you have to look at 50 years from now. And I think that that's where teachers spend a lot of money today in having stochastic model showing that, demonstrating what will happen, what the risks are. And hopefully that is, you know, enters into the decisions that people make. You know, to me, it's not more complicated than that. Yeah. And so as you look back on the last few decades, I mean, is there anything upon reflection where it's kind of today is different or, you know, and it could be any number of topics. It could be the challenge of high fee portfolio managers in a world where indexing has become more prevalent. It could be, hey, you know what? Private equity is too hard these days. Or you say, you know what? I still love managed futures. I didn't like them five years ago. Anything possible, anything in particular you've changed your mind on over the years or come to any sort of different belief today than you may have had 5, 10, 20 years ago? I think you have to adjust your belief. You know, I think we've we've had a, a heck of a nice run, in, especially in the U.S. in terms of returns. Uh, this cannot last forever. So you got to take that into account when you look at the future and be a little bit conservative so, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, I'm a great believer in making the money before you spend it. When you look at the future, you have to be somewhat conservative and make sure that you're not uh, promising more than you can deliver because uh, people will be disappointed. And uh, demography, that's the other thing that we don't pay enough attention in the pension business and even in uh, managing uh, health care is that demography is a very powerful thing. And when you have a lot of a young population, it's very easy to correct mistakes. But as the population ages, it is much tougher to correct your mistakes. And you have to take that into account when you manage a plan, when you manage almost anything where, you know, you got to look at the 50 and 100 years forward. In some ways, I think we were able to do that. And uh, to this day, I think people accept that, uh, you know, here's how much a plan costs. And, and you know, there's just so much you can get out of, of, out of return. If, if you look at the, the, uh, the kind of return we've, uh, that we've obtained since, uh, in 19, since 1900 to 2016 on bonds, real rate is less than 2%. Nominal rate, you're looking at 4%. You know, it's hard to predict that you're going to do much better than that in the next hundred years. Same thing on stocks. And, uh, you know, when I look at private equity and infrastructure, which a lot of people say, oh, there's magic there. There's no magic. Over time, these returns will come back similar to what we see in the stock market and probably uh, may not be as good because a lot of the uh, e- easy returns have been obtained. I mean, you can restructure a company just so many times. Well, but see, they can just keep selling it to each other and then taking it private and then re-leveraging it up and buying it out again and then going public. <laughs> but they look very sober, thoughtful advice. And it's spoken like someone who's done it, but also been a student of history as well. So, Claude, you, so post 
Ontario. I know you've kept busy. You've been uh, doing a bunch of boards, but also we saw that you co-founded something called the Canadian Coalition for Good Governance. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what that is and what the what the purpose is. I think that you know when when you invest, for instance, initially we invested a lot in in the index fund. Uh, so uh, the whole story goes is that uh, if if you know you really have to care about governance if you index in in, in index fund. One of the things that the coal, you know the coalition was founded by a good friend of mine, Stephen Jaroslawski, who is a fabulous uh, investor. And you know he called me one day and we invited a, a group of pension funds and. Uh, we decided that we were the owner uh, of the Canadian uh, company. So we, we had to uh, make our views known. And one of the early views that we had is that we wanted to separate chair and CEO. And we were able to convince Canadian companies that this made sense, that uh, these were two jobs. And today this is accepted. So the coalition today regroups all the institutional investors, mutual fund, pension funds. There may be even some foundations there. You know, I'm not as up to date. But the idea was to regroup everybody and make our views known in terms of good governance, in my view, leads to good results over time. And we've seen that. And I think that we were able to convince com companies of making changes and many, but the biggest change that we were able to do is to separate chair and CEO. And in many companies, uh, especially in the U.S., the same person wears two hats when we felt that this was, uh, you know, two separate things. But we've also, I think the coalition has been there to represent the investors when uh, regulations or law changes. And this is a voice that uh, people take seriously. Uh, we're not there, you know, we're there to help uh, essentially the companies do a better job. I think at the end of the day, what the coalition is trying to do is make sure that Canadian companies and today, you know, because these similar institutions exist around the world, that uh, they, uh, the corporations do a better job because everybody benefits if the corporations do a better job. Yeah, you know, it's interesting and it's, it's becoming very topical in the US. The media has really been starting to pick up on it because you have a lot of these very large uh, passive institutions. I think I just saw, I get this wrong, so I apologize if I do, but um, there's now a company stock in the US. I think it's a REIT. REITs in particular have a very large passive ownership here that's majority owned by passive investors. And, you know, that's a somewhat atypical situation and there's a, a pretty wide spectrum of beliefs as to what sort of responsibility those institutional investors have to governance and I, I think you're on the right side of this uh, I think it's challenging for a lot of people though but a, but an interesting takeaway you had a great quote in an interview that we could probably weave in here uh, that I just love it says when you have to make a decision always make the one that will let you sleep better not the one that will let you eat better you have any any more thoughts on that? <laughs> Do you remember saying that? <laughs> well, this is this is you know the quote doesn't come from me; it comes from a famous actuary by the name of Ed Lou. And when I became an actuary, that's the only thing I remember from the speech that he gave at the time. 
and I've used it a lot in speeches that I've made over time to actuaries or other organizations, because to me it's it's always very important that you know you do what what makes sense, and you don't necessarily look as to how much money you're going to make because of these decisions. And uh, so I'm a great believer in that. And uh, having said this, I also believe in paying people fairly. But uh, I always wanted the people that I've worked with to make sure that they did what was right. And if they felt that, you know, I, I was going the wrong way, that, it, that they would tell me. Because uh, uh, to me, it, it's it's something that I've tried to live by and uh, do what's right don't don't try to uh, don't cut corners uh, and you'll sleep better i like it you know it, it's a a similar quote that we kind of echo a lot all the time when people are thinking about investing particularly during bull markets you know is that they tend to optimize on potential return rather than see the rest of the picture and and i think in our very first book we had a quote along the lines of old chinese proverbs says fish see the bait but not the hook so they're always people are always looking at the at the at the return side, but very rarely the other side, which which is a lot more challenging for people. Claude, this has been a lot of fun. The question we usually ask everyone at the end of the podcast is looking back over the years, and this can be your personal life, it could be something that happened at Ontario or elsewhere. Is there a most memorable investment that comes to mind? It could be something good. It could be something bad. It could be something uh, simply that just sparks a memory. Anything uh, off the top of your head? If you ask uh, a lot of the uh, teachers, the one investment that comes to mind for them is we invested in the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the, the Toronto, you know, and that became the Raptors, and the, you know, uh, so we were very early in in investing in the sport business, and I think that has been a great investment. But probably the best investment, the one that is most memorable for me, is our investment in Cadillac Fairview, and Cadillac Fairview, as I said, is the largest real estate company in Canada. Today they have something like 90 people developing new investment but uh, probably the, as i said the one that most teachers and a lot of people in, in canada would remember us by is our investment in the, the hockey team the maple leaves and this year they're doing very well but uh, we were there when times were a bit tougher but it was a great investment for us i love it i, I used to always ask my canadian friends there i said why, why isn't it the toronto maple leaves instead of the maple leafs that's <laughs> the thing i always remember when my uh, hockey season comes around. I love it. Claude, this has been a blast. Thanks for taking time to chat with us today. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your time also. Listeners, we'll add show links to uh, everything we talked about today, including links to a few of the books as well as uh, everything else. You can always find the show notes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Leave us a review. We love to read them. I think it's almost 500 reviews now, Jeff. 498 of them are, are really uh, thoughtful. Uh, just kidding. Uh, download, listen to us on Stitcher, Overcast, Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.